Have you guys ever been uh, around someone who's crying? And when they're crying, you just feel nothing. Have you, have you ever felt that? Okay, two people are honest. Someone's world is crashing down and you feel nothing. Raise your hand. Good. Okay, some more honest, terrible human beings. Terrific. Good. We can work with terrible, right? We we have to be honest first, right? There's something about that space when someone is breaking down in tears and you feel nothing. Now, when you feel nothing, what do you try to do, okay? There are two reactions. One, you find a polite excuse to leave the room, correct? Oh, they need a drink of water. Come on, be honest, right? Oh, oh, they need tissues. Or somebody needs to go watch the kids while they cry. I'm going to go over here and, you know, help out, right? I, I, you know, I'll, I'll be of use over here. The other response is the fixer. Who are the fixers in here? Okay, what are you crying about? Let's talk through it. What's wrong? Come on, anybody? Okay, yes. The, the idea is, okay, we don't have time for crying. Let's fix it. What's the problem? I will help you. Let's get it done. Now, what is happening inside this space? Why are we either trying to, one, avoid it, or two, trying to shut them down? You know, I've I've seen this a lot in ministry. There's a, we don't do it as much anymore, but, you know, we used to have every Sunday, there was people who were crying and were praying for them. And, you know, sometimes it, you know, they were being a little bit dramatic. But, But other times, there are spaces, just like this morning I experienced, there are spaces where someone is going through something so serious and so intense that you don't want to feel it. Because you know, if I actually allow myself to connect to what they're going through, I'll realize in that moment there's nothing I can do for them. And the only thing that's going to happen is I'm going to start to cry with them. And most of us, see that as useless. It's not helpful, right? We're not fixing anything. We're not changing the situation. You know, as a pastor, I'm told that we're always supposed to have the answer, right? So if someone's crying, if the world's falling out, I'm supposed to know what to say. But the one thing I've found in myself is the more honest I've become, the more I've allowed God to kind of to mature me, to embrace my own brokenness, my own pain. In those moments, I realize There's not much I want to do except for allow myself to feel what they're feeling. Because, you know, it's not going to change it. It's not going to fix the situation. It's not going to make it go away. You know, I'm not offering some kind of a cheap answer. I'm not offering some kind of a, here, I'll pray for it and it's all better. Here's a Band-Aid. Head home. Because to feel with them, to experience that, it's going to cost me something. It's going to it's going to hurt a little bit. It's going to mean I'm going to have to admit not only that this person is going through something, but I'm also going to have to admit that I can't fix it, that it's bigger than I am. And if I touch this thing in their life that's bigger than me, that's bigger than they are, that means it's going to remind me of something else, of the things in my life that are bigger than me, the things that I can't fix, things I can't control. See, Christians are some of the most skilled at finding ways to believe that we're giving things to God when what we're actually doing is convincing ourselves that we are God. 
There are ways that you've been taught to pray where what you're teaching yourself to do is to learn to just take this thing that's overwhelming and overpowering and, and confusing and it hurts and it's painful and we're finding ways to just to wish it away, to ignore it. Well, I have faith. Amen. It's gone, right? That person I love who's, who died and passed away, well, I've got faith. Thank you, Jesus. Cancer, I've got faith. What takes faith is facing it. See, it doesn't take any faith for me to say I have faith and then to walk away from it. What takes faith is to actually sit there and face it, to let myself feel it, to let it overwhelm me, to, to actually realize how serious, how big, how immense, how, how much more this thing is than I am. See, if I actually face it, if I actually feel it, now I need faith. The moment that I begin to doubt and I begin to, to feel lost and confused and, and overwhelmed, and I begin to feel as if there's no hope, that's when I actually have to tap into faith. When I begin to struggle and I can't see past this, that's when I actually begin to tap into faith. But if I just say I have faith, I can walk away from it. Oh, I've got faith for that. Amen. Be healed. You know, I'm praying for you. I, you know, I believe for you. Be healed. That's not faith. That's hiding. That is called fear in action. It's not faith in action. See, the Psalms show us a deeper faith. The Psalms show us that to trust God is to face life, to face the darkness in life. To trust God is not to find Him away from the problems, but to meet Him in the middle of our pain. To meet him in the middle of the spaces where we don't have answers and there's no Bible verse to make it go away. See, the problem with the Psalms are this. If you read the Psalms honestly, the Psalms don't let or make any of your problems go away. The Psalms invite you to face your problems. The Psalms invite you to, to look at your life with honesty, with an open heart, with vulnerability, which means to feel. Now, uh, Who's ever been to a very, very emotional, sad movie? Come on. Name it. What was that movie for you? Where, like you're watching it and you just like lost it. What? What? Tight. You know what? I was going to say that, but I thought the people would boo me. There's room. Just, just pull Leo up. Just pull Leo. There's room right there next to you, right? All right. Okay. okay. What's some other movies for you guys? Just, I mean, like when you saw it, like, you, you know, you, it's embarrassing. Do what? Oh, the passion. Oh, no, no. Oof. The whole time in that movie, I'm just doing this. It's, it's, it's too much. It's overwhelming, right? You know, I, I don't want to feel that. Come on, something else. Do what? Oh, at least it's Beetlejuice. It's like, we need to pray for you. <laughs> Beetlejuice. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, that's, that's definitely one. Okay, how about this? Who's seen Marley and Me? It's about dogs, right? We're all in that theater, and, you know, it's cute, and it's this great movie. And at the end, like, you have, like, grown adults losing their stuff. I mean, like, tears. I mean, just, you know. It's a Disney movie. Mercy. What was the other one I was thinking about? There's one more. Name some more, like, sad movies. Anybody? The Pursuit of Happiness. Oh, that's just terrible. Oh, here's the one. John Q. 
Okay, dads in the room, dads. If you guys have watched John Q, I mean, what did it do to you? I used to watch that movie all the time. And then I had a kid. I've never seen it since I had my first child. I can't take it, right? It's, it's too overwhelming. Now, what happens now? When you are at Marley and me, okay, and you are just crying and you're just like vulnerable and tender, what happens in that space? What happens is the next moment someone says anything, that tenderness extends. So it could be like an hour after the movie you're eating and like the commercial comes up and it has some kind of dog, you know, in the commercial and runs away. Oh, it's just like Marley, you know. Right? Okay. That tenderness, it takes time to bury the tenderness. Do you see what I'm saying? There are movies or songs or experiences that open you up to feeling. Now, think back to the last moment you had like that. Funerals can do that for us. There are, are all sorts of experiences where it can open you up and you are raw, you are tender. And what's dangerous about being this way, well, I'll say this, what's good about being tender and raw and open is that you get to feel, right? Because, see, it's not just tender to, you know, to cry. When you're tender, you're just tender, meaning it can be laughter, it can be tears, it can be anger, it can be joy. It just means that you are open to feeling in those spaces, right? Now, what do we do with that? When you realize how vulnerable you are, what do you do? How about this? Were you ever at work and all of a sudden you just had like, your emotions just break down? Like you just felt either rage or tears or something, right? What did you do? Go to the bathroom. You escape, right? Why? Stop preaching for me. See, she preached yesterday. She already wants to take my job. She knows I can't sing, so I can't take hers, but what happens in this, shh, gosh, it's just that. We, we are afraid because we know what happens if I break down at my desk and my coworkers come into that space. I could get what? Hurt. And so we know that after Marley and me, we've got to box it up. We've got to find a way to put it just to lock it away. There are a few places where people are as shut down and numb as funerals. Ever watch people's faces when they walk into a funeral? <clears throat> most, not all, most people walk in stone-faced. <clears throat> it's not that they don't care. It's that they are afraid to care. Because what happens if I begin to connect my experience of losing my friend or my parent and I, <clears throat> what happens if being in this room, hearing these, these sad songs, hearing these stories about this person who's passed, if, if seeing, you know, the, uh, the casket, what happens if all of that taps in to my experience? I'm going to be raw, and I'm not going to be able to control it. I won't be able to protect myself. So in this series on Psalms, we've been talking about how the Psalms invite us they invite us into honesty, into embracing the deepest parts of how we live life, how we experience life, meaning your thoughts, your, your will, your emotions, your feelings. 
But the danger in this is, is that if we allow God to give us permission to be honest and raw, the moment we're honest, we can't help but express it. So honesty moves to cursing, right? Now, we talked about that. If you missed that sermon, I apologize. You know, I encourage you to go watch it, but it, it won't make much sense. But in the short end, it's this. The moment that we give honesty and, we, and that we receive honesty, we begin to express, we allow everything that's been in there to come out. But it comes out in a safe way. See, there's something safe about our anger. Because even though we're being honest, we're being transparent, it's coming out in a way where we still have our walls up. I can curse and yell and put out all of my emotions in a safe way where I'm still protected. Because when I come out in my anger, it's, it's coming out, I'm being honest, but my walls are still up. But if we allow cursing, if we allow that emptying to take place, it moves to a new space. And it moves from cursing to crying. It moves from yelling and frustration to tears. And see, there's something about that place of crying. The reason that when someone's breaking down in front of you and they're crying, the, the reason that you want to put words to it, you want to, to fix it, is because, see, tears are the only language that makes sense when our pain is more than we can even understand. There's a space where the only way for us to feel and to connect and to get out how we feel is tears. And it might not make sense the way that words make sense. But internally, that is how we learn. That's how we get a grip. That's how we, that's how we begin to understand the pain that we're feeling. And so we go from honesty to cursing to tears. But what happens after that? There's a danger in this. The moment that we allow God to meet us in our pain, He begins to bring healing inside of us. There's a freedom that takes place. Because see, once He begins to allow me to bring it out, once He begins to meet me in it and to heal me, now I don't have to hide anything anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid for someone to catch me in my tears or in my honesty. <clears throat> but there's a danger here. What would your life be like if you spent every minute of, of tomorrow, let's just picture this. What would Monday be like if you spent every minute completely emotionally open and tender from that place of Marley and me? What would your day be like? Would you get anything done at work? Absolutely not. Because if you were in that place of absolute tenderness and openness, you would be connecting with every person in such deep and overwhelming ways, you wouldn't be able to focus on anything else but what? People. See, emotions are what connects you to people. So we've learned how to be honest. We've learned how to curse. We've learned how to cry. But here's the next step. We have to learn how to care. To learn how to care. To actually give a something about the person next to you. We're not cursing this morning, so I can't say anything, but you know, you guys understand, right? To care at all about the person next to you. Now, what's the danger in caring? What happens in this? What would your life be like if you actually lived your life caring for people? I have people who come to me a lot, and you know, I'll get emails or calls, and it's people who are you know, they're, they're going to seminary or they want to be a pastor and they had questions for me. <clears throat> and they always ask me, okay, so what do you have to say to me, you know, uh, with being a pastor? Is there any advice you give me? And I'll say this, I'll say, 
Run as fast as you can that direction. Do anything else in your life but this. And of course, their face is always like, well, I've talked to five of their pastors and they all really encourage me. I said, yeah, but I'm honest. Here's why. Because to live your life, to really pastor, to pastor in a way that's faithful to the example of Jesus, you have to care about people. You have to give a crap. It's hard enough in your life to care to fully connect to your spouse. Do you care about everything your spouse is upset about every day? I'm not just talking to the men, but I could do that stereotypically, right? Are you fully engaged when they come in crying about whatever, or like when the kids come home from school and this and that? I mean, are you, do you have enough capacity to care? Okay, don't answer. <laughs> I was like, the men are like, do you really want us to like put our hands up here? Okay, now extend that. Extend that. To, to one more family, three more families, 10 more families, 20 more families. Try to extend sincere emotional connection to the people you're supposed to care for. Now, I'm tricking you a little bit. Here's the trick. I've just described the role of a pastor, but I really haven't. I've just described the role of a what? A Christian. See, there's no one who really, well, I'll say that. There are a few amazing people, saints, and you guys are perfect. But the rest of us humans, you don't really want to live life caring for everyone around you. You don't really want to because you're smart enough to know it's painful. It hurts. It takes a tax from you. See, the most successful pastors I know and when I say successful, I'm not talking about like the best pastor. I mean the ones who everyone thinks are successful. They have learned how to disconnect themselves from the people that they pastor. Not all of them. There are some who have figured out the amazing ability to pastor thousands of people and still care and love. There are those exceptions. But the majority of the people I know who have big churches, who have learned to do this, have learned to do it as a business. And we learn to do it separated. The first thing I was ever taught about being a pastor was this. They don't need you to be their friend. They need you to be their pastor, which was code speak for this. Always keep them at a distance. We park in the back. They come in the front. We go to our office. They come in the front door. We go straight home, and we make sure that we only see them in safe, contained environments. Now, what was beautiful about this was it taught me everything that was wrong about pastoring. Everything not to do, I learned there. But it went beyond that. I started to realize this is what it is to not be a pastor. This is what it is to follow Jesus, to live lives that are not safe, to put down everything in your life that protects you from connecting to the people you don't want to connect to. One of the first things that ever happened to me whenever I began to sincerely follow Jesus was I began to find myself in situations having to listen to people's stories who I really didn't want to care about people who I really didn't think should, should have my time. See, I was taught as a pastor, we prioritize our time. We put our time into the right people. You don't put them in people who won't pour back into church. You only put your time to people whose giftings or abilities or money will pour back into the church. But I couldn't help it. I kept being drawn to the people who I knew were not going to give us anything. And there's a problem there. Because I would sit there for 10 minutes at the table, and I'd be good. I was fine. I didn't care. I was good there for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. 
and I'd almost make it to the car, and then I couldn't help it. There would be something. There would be connection. There would be something that they would say that would connect to my experiences with God. There was something that they're going through that I could relate to, and I couldn't just cut them off. I had to stay connected. I had to care. Now, have you guys ever heard a politician before? Okay, so in the debates, let's say, okay, Senator, what is your, what is your solution for blah, blah, blah? How do they answer? Well, when I went to Little Rock, Arkansas, there was a, a 16-year-old boy named Johnny. Right? No, you guys haven't ever heard that? Okay. And what they begin to do is they begin to tell a story that to most of us is not answering the question, correct? It's completely from left field. Now, on the one hand, they are just being sleazy and they're avoiding the answer. That's fine, right? But on the other hand, they're trying to do something. They're trying to connect you to what? A story. A person. A face. Have you guys ever seen ads on TV for... Um, medicines. And of course, at the end, it has like the side effects and the, you know, they whisper, you know, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you could die, your hair could fall out, you'd, you know, blah, blah, blah. In these commercials, they're always structured the same way. It's not someone who comes out and says, hey, if, if you want a cure to this, here's the answer. They always package it in something else. They say, here's Jan, and Jan has struggled for years and years with blah, blah, blah condition. And it shows her sad face, right? And like in, in the lighting in the back is gray, Come on, you know what I'm talking about? It's dark and sad. It's like the wind blows. It's terrible. And then all of a sudden, like, the sun begins to rise. But Jan found blah, blah, blah pill. And now Jan is happy. And she's like on a bike on the beach. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. They're connecting you to story. They're connecting you to a human. Now, what you have here, and I was about to hold my Bible, and I didn't bring it today. What you have here in the Bible is a collection of what? Stories. And stories that all, all these stories in this book start with something. It starts with giving the characters names. Now, there's something powerful in this. There's something powerful in a name. The moment you take an it, and it begins to, and it takes a name. How about this? When you bring home a pet, think about your favorite pet, okay? When it went from the dog to what, pebbles? Okay, when it became Pebbles or Sparky or whatever it is you call that pet in your house, right? When it received a name, it became a person. Now, how do you relate to your dog compared to other stray dogs who look scared or, you know, sick or have rabies? Those things are its. Child, get away from that dog. You don't know that, that dog. But whenever we talk about our dog, it's as if it's a person. And because what's inside of this, you as a human being have been created to connect with human beings in a way that you do not connect with things. I'm not supposed to feel a whole lot about this. Cool. It you know, has color to it. It has some texture. Awesome. has purpose. has practicality. But it's still a thing. It, and, and things are to be used. People are not to be used. See, things are to be used, but people are to be known. Gosh, I need to do a whole series on this. In every form of oppression, slavery, racism, 
sex trafficking, economic oppression. In every form of oppression, at the root of it is a narrative, a story, where a person becomes a thing. When the Holocaust began, the people of Israel became things. They began to be talked about as its. Names began to be removed and labels were placed in, in their stead. The only way that these, the European Christians could have slaves would they had to find verses in the Bible that would tell them that black humans were not fully human. They were less than human. They were things. They were animals. And any time that a side or a person wants to commit any kind of harm or war towards another person, you have to remove a name and you have to find a way to create it in it. So the moment that you begin to want to hate that person or that group, it's no longer Joey or Tommy. Now it's liberal. Now it's conservative, right-winger, Baptist, charismatic. We're taking away faces. We're taking away names. Because there's something in this, there's something so deeply rooted in the way you were created as a human being, is that you as a human being are supposed to see and value other human beings. Now, for me to value a human, it means I have to value this person's stories. How do you know someone else? When you sit down to get to know them, what are you learning about them? You begin to learn their story, their, their, their life experiences. Now, in Christianity, we have a word for story. What's that super holy-sounding word for story? Come on, louder. Testimony. Now, what does testimony mean? It has a different connotation, right? To have a testimony has an idea where it's, it's, it's a life story, but it's been polished, has some makeup, it's got the right, the right angle for the Instagram shot. It looks more pretty than someone's actual story. What's, what's crazy about this is that we come from a faith tradition, and we come from a long line of people who followed a God, and that God valued the people's story. The, the largest section of your book, of, your, of the Bible, of your sacred text, is one story about a people who you've never met, you don't know, and you can't fully connect with. But the reason that that story is full of names and details and families and sons and daughters and friends and brothers and sisters is for one reason, that you would learn how to connect. Now, what is the first thing that we do when you hear a story or an experience that you don't agree with? What's the first thing that you do? The first, when you begin to hear an experience of someone else's that you do not agree with, and again, the church is famous for this. When there is a person who comes forward and says, hey, here's what I have experienced, what's the first thing we do? We begin to disqualify their story, their experiences. Well, I've never seen it as blatant as we've had in the last year because of the election and the divisions politically. But the moment that there's a story about immigration, about gun control. Heck, I, I first experienced this back whenever, I, you know, I was a pure charismatic. I was raised in a church. We were all about speaking in tongues. Who here was raised in a church like that? 
Who was raised in a church that hated speaking in tongues? Come on, raise your hand. Okay, great. The moment someone came to you with a story and said, well, I went to a church, they were speaking in tongues and blah, 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 blah. What were you trained to do if your church didn't believe in speaking in tongues? You are taught instantly to disqualify that story of experience. No, 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 no. That didn't really happen. But, you know, it was emotionalism, it was fake, blah, 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 right? We instantly begin to disqualify that story. See, the first time I began to be honest with God and encounter God, He began to lead me into places I wasn't comfortable with. I began to be contacted and have relationship with people who I always disqualified their stories. I began to be in spaces and to experience things I didn't think I was allowed to experience, to be with Catholics and feel as close to God in a Catholic setting as I ever did in a charismatic setting. But I was taught that Catholics are not Christians. See, God wasn't supposed to be there. The book of Acts, I'll just say this, your Bible is a story of God always being beyond our comfort zones. If you have questions about that, just read the book of Acts. Every chapter in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit is always 10 feet ahead of the church, and they're always trying to figure out, is that really okay for God to show up with the tax collector, with the prostitute, with the leper, with the Gentile, with the eunuch, with the Sumerian, with the Roman centurions? Is it really okay if God shows up with those people because those people are unclean? I want you to think right now, what is the group that you believe is absolutely in sin? Who is it who you believe is absolutely on the outside of God's will? What is the first thing you do when you hear their stories? You disqualify them. You begin to attack. You begin to say, no, there's no way that really happened. I don't believe those experiences are real. See, you can only honestly connect to someone if you've honestly connected and embraced your own brokenness, your own story. Because see, every story has pain in it. You know, the Avengers just came out. Who's seen the Avengers? Anybody? I'll still be praying for you guys. It's sad. You need to go see the Avengers, okay? It's worth it, all right? But in, inside every Avengers movie is the hero's journey. It's the same storyline. Hero has a deep wound, an issue. He hasn't found his identity. He has to suffer. He has to lose everything. And then when every all hope is lost, he finds his identity in his brokenness. And then he comes back and triumphs over his loss and his pain. Pretty cool, right? That's every single Marvel movie ever written right there. But it connects to us for a reason. Because every single story in this room has pain, has loss. The only thing that separates any of us in this room, there are those who are willing to embrace their brokenness, and there are those who are only willing to hide from their brokenness. You could put any sticker on it you want to. Oh, I'm healed, or I forgive, or I choose not to. I've moved beyond, God's healed me, whatever. Your brokenness, it never leaves you. See, the reason that the scars always stay on the body of Jesus is we never forget where we've come from. We never forget what we've been through. And it's our scars, it's our pain that allows us to connect to the people around us. The moment you begin to shut down your pain, the moment you begin to ignore your darkest moment is the moment you lose your ability to connect 
to the person you don't know and you don't understand. It is impossible for me to push someone away when I am being fully aware and present and embracing my darkest moment in life. When that darkest moment of my life, of my journey, of my story with God is in my face, I cannot push anyone else away. When someone is in front of me breaking down in tears, I can only hide as long as I keep my own pain, my own fears hidden behind me. If I keep a happy face, I keep my faith speak on, I keep my pastor's appearance on, I can keep 100 miles away and not be affected. But the moment that I bring out my own story, my own pain, my own experiences, I can't help but be sucked right in to what they're going through. If you guys have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be blessed. He is the compassionate Father and the God of all comfort. He's the one who comforts us in all our troubles. Now watch this twist. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort other people who are in every kind of trouble. Now, one of the classes I'm doing right now, they taught us, they said, if you ever want to understand the point of a, of a passage, look for the so that's. The moment you find the so that, you found the point. What is the engine in this, in this verse? The engine here is this. The reason, the motivation for God to, to extend to us, to meet us in our darkest hour, is so that we meet others in their darkest We meet God in our brokenness so that I meet others in their brokenness. There is no one in this world who you can't connect to and love and have compassion for if you're willing to acknowledge your own brokenness. The only people in this world who are able to keep others at a distance, to hate them, to be angry with them, are people who are unwilling to face their own brokenness. If you would have come to my office probably six or seven years ago with an issue, I would have all the answers in the world for you. I would have a, you know, restoration plan, some action points. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But if you come to my office today, I'll probably just listen to you. I'll probably pray with you. I'll probably talk to you. And I'll probably see you again and again and again. And I'll probably walk through it with you. What's changed is back then, I hadn't yet embraced fully who I was, the brokenness inside of me. I didn't know what it was to feel lost, to feel overwhelmed, to feel confused. But I know that now. What's changed is that back then I thought I could actually fix you. I thought I really had the answer for you back then. But today I've realized what I have is I know what it's like. What I have is I know how to hold on. What I have is I'm still standing, and that's about it. And so what I have is to offer to you that I will walk through it with you because the God of all comfort met me there so that I'm going to meet with you here. But it's still going to be the God of all comfort who heals you. It's never going to be me. I will be with you in it. I'll be with you. I'll be fully. But I can't heal you. I can't fix you. 
I still need healing and fixing myself. What's amazing about this is that the moment that we as Christians embrace this, the more that we as Christians embrace that we are broken, that we are hurt, that we are still growing, still learning, still moving forward with God, the more and more the world will actually want something from us. The longer that we have this fake plastic facade that everything is okay, and the moment you come to church, you get prayed for, you get saved, everything gets fixed, the longer that the world will continue to move farther from us because they don't want anything to do with that. The reason that I'm a Christian today is because I follow a God who is present with every form of brokenness, who sat down and ate with every single person who was unclean, who was with every person who culture wouldn't accept, and was in every single place he wasn't supposed to be. That God I can follow to the end. That God I understand. That God will always show up for me in my darkest and my broken. He's always present for me. And that God will never shun anyone away in their moment of hurt or need. That God cares. And the challenge for us is this. If we are following that God, there's only one sign to see in us. If we have been touched by the God of all compassion, if we have allowed the God of all compassion into the depths of who we are, there's one fruit of that. We are the the ultimate sign of compassion. We are the people who will meet them in their darkest. If that's not you yet, there's one reason. You haven't yet let him meet you in the most honest place. You haven't yet cursed it out. You haven't yet cried it out. And you haven't yet allowed him to heal you, you to a point to where you can't help but care for every single person around you. Would you guys stand with me? So that's the danger. The danger for us is very simple. If we care for one person, what's going to protect us from caring for the next? And the next, and the next, and the next, and the next. It's overwhelming. There was a a study done, and it showed that the reason that the average American doesn't get involved to solve AIDS or the water crisis in Africa is because we feel completely disconnected. And they said that if that, that same individual who heard the stories and the sad stories with the children who are dying, if they were to hear about someone and their family suffering, they would instantly jump to change it. If $200 could, you know, could save Jimmy from his fall and he hurt his head you know, and it, from their nephew, they would do it in a second. But if $200 would save a village of children in Africa, there's no way that they would do it. And so in the study, they wanted to figure out what is it inside the mind where you're not willing to save those children. And the reason was because over there, if I connect to the need in Africa, I know that the need is bigger than one village. I know there's multiple villages. If I know there's a need in Africa, I know there's also a need in Asia. There's also a need over here in Europe. There's also a need in Alma. I know there's needs everywhere. And I'm not willing to care for all of them. And they said that the ultimate find was this. It wasn't that we don't want to care. It's not that we don't want to fix. It's that we are afraid to care. Because if I let myself feel, if I let myself connect, if I let myself care about that need, where does it end? Where does my caring for people stop? I've just described to you what it means to follow Christ. 
to literally to care, to give value to every single person you come in contact. Not just the ones in your family, not just your friends, not just your coworkers. Every single person you come in contact with, I absolutely care about what you are going through. And you're right. It, you should be scared of that. But you can't disconnect these. For you to be fully alive, fully connected to your joy, to compassion, to love, to dreaming, means you have to fully be connected to the ability to feel sadness and pain and compassion. To be fully alive means that you have to live fully dangerously. To fully enjoy life, you also have to be fully risking every day to be sucked into the lives of the people around you. The only way to not be sucked into the lives, to care about people, to hurt and to give, to sacrifice to people is to shut yourself down, to live as a shell of a human being. The only way you will ever live a safe life is to live a broken life. The only way that you will ever live fully alive is to live fully vulnerable to caring about every person in your life. And it is a risk. So Father, we just ask that you'd come this morning. We can't do this on our own. We can't manipulate this. We can't force this. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just begin to dive into the depths of our, of our past, of our story, of our experiences, of our emotions, of our thoughts, that you would begin to untangle us, to meet us. Lord, this morning we invite you into every place that we've shut down our hearts, every place we've, we've been unwilling to care, every place we've tried to ignore the hurts of the people around us, every place we've tried to ignore or to lock away our own pain, our unforgiveness, our disappointment. We decide to let you in. Meet us in those spaces. Heal us. Make us whole. Let us live fully alive to you and fully alive to everyone around us. Give us courage to take the risk to be humans that are fully alive in Christ, fully compassionate, full of joy and mercy and grace and love and forgiveness, fully alive in you, Lord Jesus.